Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. Join us today as we learn from God's word in Habakkuk. We pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, real quickly, I wanted to uh, encourage you guys, remind you that next week we won't have any video. Uh, and I'm actually really excited that there isn't going to be a video camera between me or us all. Um, we're going to be up at Sugarloaf Campground. 10.30 is a service. If you are already signed up for the camp out, we'll see you there. If you aren't, I would encourage you to come up. Come join us for the service. We have four baptisms. If you're considering baptism, you want to talk about it as well. We're super, super excited about it. Please join us at the camp out next week, Sugarloaf Campground, 10.30 a.m. Um, it's weather's saying nice right now, so you might want to bring an umbrella because you will be sitting in, in the sun as well in the morning. Um, so thank you so much for joining us next week, and we look forward to it. And I'm just going to end. And, no, I'm just kidding. I'll start. Today's text is, is one of those ones. It's a continuation of last week. And yesterday, I... Uh, was at a funeral, and it was it was it, it's, it was like every other funeral you go to. It's it's full of of sadness. Even even for those that hope differently, those of us that know about eternity and know about the Father and, and submitted to Jesus Christ, there's still just sadness. And and no matter what, every funeral always reminds me um, just how broken this world is. Just how how death is the culmination of brokenness. And we, we talked about this last week. We started talking about this through this text is that the issue in this world is going to show itself in all kinds of ways. It's going to show itself in, in pornography and sex trafficking and racism and all those different things. But at the root of every single one of those things is sin. And the culmination of sin is death. And so when we see sin or brokenness in this world, when we, when we see this happen, it should grieve us as followers of Jesus because it's not what God wants. In fact, he sent his son to obliterate and to have victory over death so that we could live in the resurrection. So sin and, and death is, is just, it's gross. It's, it's nasty. I wrote it in my, my notes this way. We have to keep ourselves fixated on the active participation of our lives being subjugated to Jesus Christ as Lord. That means that today I am to live faithfully to the word of God in thought, word, and deed. And all my actions are planted in the submission to God to make me more like Jesus and bringing his kingdom to this world as we plead with him for it to be as it is in heaven here on earth. And we do all of this for the glory of God. So what's wrong with this world? It's sin. And, and our, our part as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, is to, is to bring, is to usher with his spirit in us, ushering in the kingdom of God in all areas of brokenness and sin. And that is what we're supposed to do. And we started this section. I'm not going to recap the rest of Habakkuk. You're going to have to go back and look at it. But we started this section reminding everyone, again, that sin is still the pandemic. Sin is the issue that all of us are in place and wrestling with and working through. And it will be the issue until Jesus comes back the second time to rid us of it once and for all. 
And last week we started this section, which is a kind of a series of, of five woes. These, these woes, these ahas, these kind of mocking taunts towards the Chaldeans that God does in a response to Habakkuk. It's God's answer to Habakkuk about what he's doing and how he's going to go forward. And he, he says this series of woes is kind of designed to show that ultimately sin and evil and crime and greed and oppression and debauchery and, and idolatry, all of those things are doomed to destruction through the wrath of God. And last week, I, I told you I heard a pastor talk about this section, this chapter two section is kind of the idea of being under wrath or discipline. And so I just ran with his idea in this. And we talked about the idea that there's, there's a godly wrath that we can't take away. Because if we take away godly wrath, then we, we really nullify and make the point of the cross very, very pointless. And so we see that godly wrath is this divine retribution that's sure to come. And it may come without additional warning, but it's God's hand of justice that shall make returns to people according to the works. God's wrath against sin and sinners is so great that he sent his son to die on the cross so that in the place of those who were to be redeemed, no lesser sacrifice would do. And so we see that, 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 this is, that if we deny wrath, we essentially deny the gospel. And when we realize and we see the brokenness today and we see what hap what's happening in this world for those that are not submitted to Jesus Christ, well, then we know that we can stand back. Again, we still engage in it. This is not a way to, to disengage from it, but we can stand back and know that ultimately justice, whether it is ever shown here or it has ever come across here, that ultimately God will have his justice because God is a just God and is trusting him in that way. And then we talked about godly discipline basically through Hebrews chapter 12 in this way. And we talked about how discipline has a is a vision for the future that brings about, bears, bears things today. So when I see discipline, we said it, we are to endure discipline or endure hardship as discipline. And that there's, a, there's this reality for us that, that ultimately everything that is sin, everything that is struggle is due one of two things, the wrath of God or for those of us that live by faith in Jesus Christ, the ones that he talked about in Habakkuk here, then for those we can experience discipline and God only disciplines those whom he loves. And so we talked about how Either way, we have to recognize that these woes, these kind of these things that, that the Chaldeans are being pronounced by God saying, this is why you will receive destruction. This is why this is coming at you. We're based on these specific things going through there. And so last week we hit a couple of them and we said, look, if that's the, if that's the expectation that wrath is due to these things, then as his children, as those that live by faith, we should take no part in those things. And so we've kind of been working through the woes that way. And so we're going to hit three woes again today, and we're going to do the, the same thing. We're going to talk about them. A couple of these, basically these woes today, the reason why I separated them out, I feel like these are the ones that we struggle with as Christians the most. And it's important for us to understand that, again, the expectation is that God sees them as sin, and it's deserving his wrath. And so for those of us that are followers of Jesus, which we will get to communion later on, we don't drink the cup of wrath. We get to drink the cup of blessing, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But either way, our actions, our words, our thoughts, our posture should be to not engage in these very things, but to run from them because they have no part for us. And so that's where we are. And so I'm just going to read the, the sections that we're going to be in. We're going to be in the first woe, which is chapters, um, and the second woe kind of combine together. They talk about... Um, woe to the thieves or those that, that, that do extortion and woe to greed is kind of the two. So I'll just read those real quick. Six through 11. Shall not all these take their taunt against him and with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. 
because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So there's the first well. The second one, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And so we see a, a couple things ongoing here. First off, in the first woe, he's talking about like, woe to you who, who rob, who thief, or, or through extortion. Woe, woe to you. You're, you're going you're to plunder these people. You're going to take from these people. And these, the remnants, meaning the people that are scattered, the people that you've kept as slaves, they will build and they will come against you. And we see that it takes some years, but God builds the people to come back against the Chaldeans. And it happens around 538. But he's saying, look, you have, you have, you have, you've heaped up what is not your own. You've taken, you've, you've spoiled, you've gone after the booty and, and, and everything you can get and every single thing that you go towards, you're looting and you're stealing and you're going and you're doing what is not your own. He says, the first was directed towards those who acquire goods dishonestly. Both means of acquisition involve wordplay in, in the Hebrew. So there's two ways it says it, and it's a wordplay. The first involves amassing goods which were, are not our own, and then either through robbery or fraud. And the second means kind of extortion through accumulation of pledges. Now, pledges in this day, what it meant is pledges were items used as security for money borrowed. And what would happen is the, the people, a, a, a conquering force would take over a space and then they would let the people they conquer live, but they would have no money or no means or anything else. So for them to get it, they would have to borrow them from those who conquered them. And then they would make pledges and say, well, I will do this or I'll give you this. And this is the pledge that will secure my borrowing for food or for anything else. And it was normally for, for very small things. They weren't looking for like businesses and everything else. It was just to survive because that's the the level with which their standard of living was once conquered, especially those conquered by Babylon. And so what was happening is these were securities of default. They were usually confiscated prematurely. So what would happen is someone would maybe make a day later or not even be a day later, getting close to it, and they would just get confiscated prematurely and without thought for the needs of the borrow. And this practice would normally lead them into enslavement. We see this happen in Nehemiah 5, saying, look, this is what happens, is these are the things that are happening and they're borrowing, but because they can't fulfill it and the pledges are taken early, they have no way to secure it, and now they become enslaved. And this practice of usury was forbidden by the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 24.10. This very practice that they're doing, God says, no, this is forbidden. And he's saying, look, the very people that you're doing this to, they're going to rise up and they're going to come at you. Now, you've seen this in history, or if you've watched any movie ever, the, the people that conquer very harshly when someone finally that is conquered or in submission or subjugation, subjugation to someone, when they finally raise up, they usually come back with even more harshness due to the fact of what was done to them because they're angry and bittered and what's going on. And so he's saying, you can't do this. The word creditors here usually means to bite. I thought that was very interesting. He's, he bites his chunk from the possessions of the person to whom he lends money. So Babylon's biters, creditors, will rise up against them suddenly. And that's what this first second section of woes is saying. He's saying, this is because you've done this, they're going to plunder you, and you can't, you can't escape this. 
The second section he talks about here is he talks about this taking this spoil. You've, you've gotten this from evil gain for your house. So what you've done is you've, you've taken from people. You're greedy. You, there is not enough. And so you've taken very from people. And then because of the means with which you've taken from people, even Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylon king, he understood that the way that we were taking over people required us to then take the wealth that we've done and build ourselves as much as we could a fortified fortress to protect us from when those people get really, really angry and try to come at me because there's no reason why they wouldn't for the way that we treated them and their wives and their women and their children and the way we exploited those people. And so he's saying, look, he builds his nest on high. This is a, a common thing, a bird. It's a metaphorical usage, a sense of security that this person is, is building it up way high up in the tree so that no one can get to it. And he's saying it doesn't matter how high you build it, no matter how high you set your nest to be safe out of reach of harm, because you've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples, by murdering all the peoples you do, you have forfeited your life. This is the pronouncement from God. Remember, this is what God tells Habakkuk. Put this on tablets. Make this plain so everyone can see it. It's coming. This is what's going to happen. And he says, for the stone will cry out from the wall. Now, the wall here is usually the supporting wall that's, that's in place. And this, this idea of the stone is creaking and the beam from the woodwork respond. What, what he's saying here is, is it's kind of an empire founded on violence and plunder and exploitation is bound to collapse because there is no inner coherence. It's the idea of, of something creaking because it's, it's not working well together. It's not holding. There's kind of this perpetual tension with one another to providing mutual support. And they can't do it because they have to always be looking over the shoulder because of the way they treated the people that they conquered. He's saying, look, even the, the, the beams that you build, the, the wealth that you stole, that you plundered, that you took through violence and death and all those things, all of those things have come to you and those things cry out similar to the way that Abel's blood cries out to God. God hears these cries. God hears this pain. Even though God raised the Chaldeans up to do this very thing to the people of Judah, to, to, to discipline them for their lack of following him and their following Baals and the, the idolatry and all of the things that he did, even though he did all that, God hears their cries. And he says, look, it will not go on forever. My people will not be destroyed. They will be disciplined, but they will not be destroyed. And you will be destroyed because these actions, when you, when you give to greed and, and thievery or robbing or, or extortion, these things are due God's wrath. Nothing less will suffice to pay back what has been done. And that's what he's saying here. Now, my assumption is many of us are like, well, gosh, I guess when I look at that, I'm, I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not, you know, I'm not really building some nest on high to protect myself from those people. Like, the, what is really the way that this applies to the people of God? Well, the, the underlining theme that kind of comes through these woes is really impressive how he kind of, first off, they're, they're incredibly, in the Hebrew, they're incredibly poetic and memorable. There's only specific amounts of words in each one of these woes. It's just, it's beautiful how it's written, but you can see how they all tie together. Specifically here, we see greed and extortion, and then ultimately what we're going to get to, which is idolatry. Greed, which is covetousness, covetousness, which is greed, right? Or which is idolatry. So we see, we see this through here, but what he's saying is, okay, what is it with greed? So this got me thinking about us as children of God. 
how are we supposed to give ourselves to greed? And, and most, I have not met a Christian. I'm like, hi, I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm very greedy. Most of us would never admit that. Most people would never say that. They would never think that. In fact, most of us have a, a regular, a kind of a regulation in our brain that says, I'm not as greedy as those people or as that person, so I must not be greedy. And we assume that greed is just based on income. Greed is everywhere. Greed is everywhere. Greed is in everything. And so I wanted to real quickly kind of give us a, a, a litmus test between what it means for us to be greedy or, or not in place. And so first off, we have to understand, because again, this deserves the wrath of God. This deserves the wrath of God. This is, this is either going to be the wrath of God, or if you're a child of God that gives yourself to greed, then you can expect, and again, it's not always transactionary like this, but you can expect discipline. Because greed has no place. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6.10, Paul lists people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he includes the greedy people in that. By way of definition, this is how one scholar says it. He says, then greed is our inordinate desire, our excessive love for wealth and possessions, for money and the things money can buy. And even for self-esteem, security, status, and power. Greed's object is money and things, but it is not to be identified with those things. Hear me on this. This is where I think we as Christians forget this. Greed is a misplaced craving in the heart. It is good desire gone wrong. See, God made us to desire possessions. He made us to desire the things, the things as creatures in a fitting relationship to him. We're supposed to desire these things, but under the fitting relationship to him and what remains with him. The problem of greed is not that we desire things, but that our desires are misdirected and out of proportion. Look, he, he, even we see in, in Matthew 13, 44, that, that, that the kingdom of God is this treasure, treasure hidden in the field, field worth selling everything you have. It's of more surpassing value and, and worth um, suffering the loss of all things like we see in Philippians 3, 7, 8. And it's even better uh, an abiding possession of Hebrews 10, 34, who is more excellent and more enduring than every other possession we have or ever could have. He is both better in depth and better in durability when it comes to God. So desiring anything other than him is greed. So where's the line between healthy participation and economic activity around us that builds up community and greed? Uh, another scholar says it this way. He says, you'll find it in the heart. Greed is an internal sin, a species of covetousness or longing for that which you haven't been given. It's less visible at moments of active sin and more evident in its long-term corrosion of our souls. It's also a sin of faithlessness. Greed is the opposite of trusting God's provision, a grasping for security instead of resting in him. And so I found some questions, kind of looked at some questions, kind of a practical litmus test for us as Christians to understand if we have greed in heart. Because many of us, like I said, we'd look at our income, we'd see where we're at and go, well, I'm not greedy. Like, look what I do. And we might even go to the metrics of like, look, I give away this much percentage of my income and I do these things for it. Well, here's, here's some questions that we can answer that would help us understand if we are greedy in any way, shape, or form. The thing that you want, can I hold it on to it? Um, can, I, can I hold on to it? contentment and thankfulness with this thing. The very thing that you want, can you hold on to it with contentment and thankfulness? Meaning what you're looking for, whether it's a thing or a possession or a relationship, what you're kind of clamoring for, can you hold on to it with contentment and thankfulness? That's the first question. Does the desire for this push away or cloud out my spirit of gratitude? Do you find because you don't have something, because you desire something or you're going for something that you, you lack gratitude? You, you, you find yourself always going, well, I'd be more thankful if I could get this. 
you, you might be greedy. By the way, it took me a lot to not ask these questions like you might be a redneck if, just so you guys know, I just wanted to, that was in my head, sorry, that was free. Um, could you live with contentment on the same income you earned five years ago? That's a question to ask. Could you live with contentment? Not, I'm not talking about like, well, I have three more kids now. or what we could, could you live with contentment on what you'd made five years ago? And if your answer is automatically no, well, okay, then why? Is it because you've given yourself greedily to more and more and more and you've kind of kept growing as your growing is there? Or is it because life has grown and you've found ways to give away more or that's in place? But could you live with contentment? Could you live with contentment on less? Is your gut impulse, this one was good, I found this one. Is your gut impulse when someone asks you for money or time for kingdom ministry, is your gut impulse to find a way to give? Or is your immediate response, nope, I'm not gonna give, I don't have it, I can't make it work. There's a a reason for that. One is you might be so tapped out because of your greed and grabbing onto things that even when someone says, hey, could you give 20 bucks a month like we're asking for a Novotis scholarship or could you give this, could you buy this person lunch or if the Lord prompts you and says, hey, I want you to do something for this person, even outside of your, your actual submitted to God regular giving, like where he gives you a push, you're like, I, I can't do it. Or is it that you're automatically looking for a reason why you shouldn't do it? You might be greedy. Do you believe and act as if One's economic status indicates their value as a person. There's another question. Is there anything in your daily life you could go without in order to free up more money for generosity? Does that question ever come to you? Do you ever stop to think, like, is there anything I can do away with? Like, could I do away with less coffee? Could I do away with less eating out? Could I, could I take some of these enjoyments? And they're good enjoyments. not that they're bad, but could I, could I lessen these things so that more kingdom work could happen? If the answer is no way, no, I'm not doing that, you might be greedy. Are you willing to forego or limit time spent on a favorite hobby in order to free yourself for the service in your church or have or another ministry? I think this is one of those ones that's really fun is we love hobbies and I think God gives us those things to enjoy. It's a grace of his. But are you willing to allow that hobby to suffer some so that you can do more for the kingdom of God? You might be greedy. And then this was a fun question. Actually, when I was talking to Danny Pellegrini about this, he said, would you be, able, would you be willing and able to give away everything you have? And I was like, well, that's a really interesting question. He's like, well, at the end of the day, would you be willing to give away everything you have? And, and my, my bet is every single one of us, we start thinking systematically in this, like, well, I need a house, and okay, but I can give away, but I gotta have a car because I need this. And we start going through those things, and I'm sure some of those are very justified and founded. But the question is, is if you would give away everything you have, when you give away everything you have, could you do that? Or would you automatically see loss in a different way? Which, when we get down to idolatry, I'll pull this one back in. But are you willing to give away everything you have? This list isn't exhaustive. There's plenty of other ways you can find out if you're greedy. In fact, many people will find out they're greedy just by the way they tip or by the way they operate with their things. And we sometimes we will mask it by frugalness or I'm, just, I'm a wise steward and we'll kind of try and bring some good Christian words into it. But at the end of the day, We as Christians, as followers of Jesus, should be inclined, operating, acting, living, thinking as the most generous people in the world because we recognize that everything we have is his. Everything we have is his. There's not a single thing that you made for yourself. It's his. All of our possessions are his. And we hold a possession that is far greater than anything in this world. It's the inheritance of his kingdom. 
We hold a possession. Every spiritual blessing is already ours in Christ Jesus. So wanting any of these other things can give us to greed. We have to be careful. Uh, Luke 12, when Jesus is talking about the man that stores up for himself and keeps storing up for himself and keeps storing up for himself, and he says, and then he ends up saying, well, today his life is going to be called on him. And he says this, he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. That is a hard word for me today. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He says all, all kinds. Jesus warned us to be wary of every form of greed, so that must mean it can come in a variety of flavors. So we have to pay attention. Is greed there? And if you are a child of God, and you recognize that right here, the Chaldeans are being told that they are going to experience the judgment, the wrath of God for their greed, for their covetousness. Gosh, that's a hard word. Are you going to be a follower of Jesus that takes that lightly? And there's a potential that you might experience the discipline of God if this is something that is in your heart that needs to be rooted out. Both covetousness and greed run into idolatry. The belief that we can get what we can only get from God out of something other than God. This is why this is so interesting they do it. It means, covetousness means desiring something other than God in the wrong way. Idolatry will destroy our relationships with God and will destroy our relationships with other people. And that's where the next woe goes into. See, all human relationships, problems and from marriage, family, friendships, neighbors, classmates, colleagues, all of them are rooted in various forms of idolatry. That is, wanting things other than God in the wrong ways. And so we have to be really careful about guarding against it. And this is the next woe that he goes into. Verse um, Verse 18 right here for you guys. What profit is it an idol when its makers has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who stay, says to a wooden thing awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. This is the one woe that takes a different stance. He, he comes out first with a threefold kind of mocking of images, of these false images of idols. He comes in and says, look, they, they're, they're, you made them. You made those things, and then you became, uh, and then you start worshiping them. How, how is that even possible? And, and idolatry has been expected by God for the whole time to be nothing that we do with. He takes it very seriously. Jeremiah 10, 14 through 15 says this, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Exodus 20 forbids all carved images or us bowing down to anything other than God. Because, and it bases that because of God being jealous. So, so idolatry is something that we shouldn't just think is small and little and do these things. No, in this last woe, the Babylonians received the message of absolute certainty concerning the outworking of God's righteous purposes, that no gods, no powers in heaven or earth can stand against the reality of the one true living God. That ultimately, these, these Chaldeans that have idolized these other things, which if you remember right, the reason why Habakkuk was pleading with God to do something about the people of Judah is because they were idolizing other things too. They had, they had started worshiping other Baals and other gods and doing those things. And so God comes back and says, look, here's what's, here's what's gonna happen. My wrath is due to those things. I'm going to do those things. Each of these phrases kind of displays folly 
For anyone, like, it can't speak, it doesn't breathe, it's a teacher of lies. So he's kind of making fun of the fact that these golden calves, these images that people are making, these things that people are idolizing, they can't do what you are actually trying to get them to do. Why, why worship something that can't sustain that worship? Whenever a person's desire looks to the creature rather than the creator, he is guilty of the same kind of foolishness. It's, imp- it's important that we see this because many of us wouldn't say like, well, I haven't been to this, te- I don't go to this temple and worship these idols. I'm not, I'm not worshiping other gods. I'm not taking part in other relationships or other religions. But, but we can, if we're not careful, as followers of Jesus, give ourselves to idolatry so quickly, so easily. Both Ephesians 5, 5 talks about it and then, for, and then Colossians 3, 5 says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So put it to death. These are things of the world. We, we shouldn't be wanting these other things. An insatiable desire for things not rightly possessed assumes that things can satisfy rather than God himself. This is why greed and, and, and idolatry go so hand in hand. When, when we have this desire for something, it's not bad to desire. It's what we, what we expect it to do for us and what we expect to give ourselves to it. Whenever a person sets his priorities, hope, or faith on the things made rather than the maker of the things, he is guilty of idolatry. I want to define idolatry this way. It's a thing loved or the person loved more than God. Wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God, and it could literally be anything. My assumption is many of you haven't had an issue of of potentially going out and worshiping a cow like some of the other religions do, but my thought would be that you could potentially idolize a hamburger in the way you treat it. So it starts in the heart. And again, if, if, this is, if this is due the wrath of God, this is what God is saying. He's saying this very thing, idolatry, is due the wrath of God. Because you have done this, because you have tried to procure up something worth worshiping, something that could sustain your worship and giving credit where credit isn't due, because you're giving your attention to something that cannot sustain you, this deserves the judgment of God through wrath. It starts in our hearts, a craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. That is an idol. Paul calls this covetousness, a disordered love or desire, loving more than God, what ought to be loved less than God and only for the sake of God. We see this in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, anything that is created rather than the creator. We have to be violent in our attacking of idolatry in our lives. We have to be so violent in in fighting this and making sure that there is nothing that we idolize, whether it's our relationship, our marriage. Man, one of the ways that I see this play out over and over and over again in Christian circles is in our kids. We, We make them our idol. We tell people that don't have kids or aren't married that they haven't arrived as followers of Christ yet because they haven't experienced a marriage relationship. We idolize marriage relationships. We tell couples that don't have kids, well, they haven't arrived because they don't redo this. And we continue to operate unintentionally, I don't think necessarily overtly or on purpose, as these things as idols. We can idolize our marriages. I can idolize Jen, and she is a crummy God. Don't worry, I'm a terrible God too. She should not idolize me. We can idolize so many things. Idolatry is a very dangerous thing. God is very specific about idolatry, and he's a very jealous God for our attention. And so if you are a child of God and you are giving yourself to idolatry or you are unintentionally, ignorantly idolizing things, then then just know that, that this is one of those areas that we could endure hardship as discipline because God is going to 
cut away the things that you idolize. He's going to rip those things from your hands. He's going to, he's going to gently and patiently or sometimes very suddenly rip your idols out of your hands. So how do we, how do we tell if we idolize something or we, we, we're giving to idolatry? Um, here's a few more questions I was just going to ask you. And if you can answer yes to these, or, then you, you might be idolizing something. You idolize something when something is enjoyed disproportionately to the worth of what is desired. Great desire for non-great things is a sign that we are beginning to make those things idols, meaning you have so much more excitement about something than really it is. And in this, sometimes the way that plays out is you're so excited about this house, you're so excited about these things that you get fixated on it and every thought comes in this. And you start, you start playing out how your life is going to look in this place as opposed to recognizing that it's the, the Lord that even gave you the money to get that house. And it's the Lord that makes that house. And that ultimately, all of those possessions are going to burn through the fire. We have to be recognized when you do this. Another way you can, you can tell, and this is a big one, um, if the scriptures forbid this, if it's sin, if the scriptures die, like say it as sin, sexual immorality or, or drunkenness, or these things, you're like, well, I don't get that drunk. I only get drunk a little bit. Like You idolize that because you're saying that, that even though God commands you to do opposite, it's not worth following. That's idolatry. So it's when it's forbidden by scripture and you continue to give to it, this is a form where you say the pleasure is worth more than God. That's idolatry. The pleasure of what you're giving yourself to is a form of idolatry because you believe that you can get something out of it even though God says don't do it and you believe it's worth doing. That's idolatry. Another way to tell is if whatever the thing is doesn't lead to gratitude to God. If you don't daily thank God for the things that you have and recognize that the only reason why you have them is because of his grace and because of who he is, you might idolize those things. You might have thought, or you might idolize self. It's another way we idolize. Idolatry can be on our self-worth and our self-ability and our ability to kind of pull our boots up and work it out. Like you might idolize, well, I, I won Jen as my wife and so I might, I, you know, I deserve that. And if I don't go to the Lord with gratitude for my wife, then I'm potentially idolizing her or myself in that situation. Our enjoyment of something should make us think of God. You experience a great steak. You don't thank the cow. <laughs> you thank God. We, when we enjoy something, if you're out on the trails, mountain biking, and look at the beautiful creation, I don't thank the people that made the trails. I thank God for making the, the landscape. Our gratitude, what, the stuff, should lead us to gratitude in God. If it's not, you most likely are idolizing that thing or that person or that position. Um, and then this is the big one talking about when I mentioned in greed. We know we idolize someone or something when loss ruins our trust in the goodness of God. <laughs> what happens when it's taken from you? What's your response? I, I, like I said, I saw it firsthand in, in, in a funeral yesterday. Death is painful. It hurts. And it's not bad to be sad. It's not bad to grieve sorrowly. Jesus wept. He shows emotions. We, we don't have to hide emotions. But our loss of those things can really quickly show us whether or not that thing was an idol or not. So this goes back to the question, what if God said give away everything? Do you trust him? What if God said, I want you to take away everything. I want you to get rid of your most prized possession, the thing that you love so much, you spent so much time working to get. I'm glad you had it and get rid of it. If you don't think he'd do that, just think about Abraham and Isaac for a second. What about when that thing's lost? Let me, let me just 
push on you a little bit here. Some of you have lost a lot in this last 14 weeks. Has God identified some idols potentially in your heart? Is he potentially kind of unclinging your grip and saying, look, look, you're my child and I don't want you to think that you can get your joy out of this income or out of this security or out of this gain or out of this position. Have, have, you, been, have you realized that your identity was wrapped up in something other than being a child of God, which could have been idolatry? Have you, have you, have you seen this? What, what is God taking from you? When we experience loss of something and we all of a sudden get mad at God, then we believe we deserve what we had and he has taken it from us and he's a mean God and we start questioning his goodness, which is idolatry. Our idols aren't capable of being idols. Here's, here's the thing. I can idolize my wife all day long, but she will let me down. She's a terrible God. I can idolize my kids all day long, but trust me, they will say really mean and harsh things and do some seriously stupid things because they have a seriously stupid dad at times. We can't idolize people. They can't sustain it. Nothing can sustain it. Your, your businesses, your work, your finances, your 401k, your retirement plans, your 20-year your plan, your 10-year plan, your education, none of those things can sustain worship. None of them. They can't. They will not hold up. They will crumble at some point. And God will rip those things from you. So if you are looking to something to finally say, I've arrived at this point, and then when I'm at this point, then I'll be this thing. You, you've potentially put it as an idol and you're trying to find hope in something other than God. And God is ferocious about idolatry. It is deserving of wrath. And then we get what we've all been longing for for so long in the book of Habakkuk, a turn to a little bit of good news in verse 20. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Guys, this, this one sentence, oh, this is just such a beautiful sentence. I would encourage you to read it over and over and over again. Memorize it and just think about it. This is, the, the, the temple stood in the midst of Israel as the place of his presence and his lordship among his people. The term for tem temple seldom described the palace of an earthly king in scripture. Rarely do we see it that way. But it appears in, in a succession of narratives as the place from which God would rule in Israel, including the tabernacle in Shiloh. We see that in 1 Samuel. Solomon's temple in 1 Kings. Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 41 and the temple constructed after the rest, restoration or restoration from exile, Zacchaeus 8.9 and Haggai 2.15. From a new covenant perspective, though, this is profound, this is beautiful. The equivalent concept is applied to the body of Christ, John 2.19. The body of the individual Christian, 1 Corinthians 3, and the corporate community of the Christian church, Ephesians 2.21. The essence of the idea of the Lord being in his temple may be seen as a declaration in this book, kind of a revelations concerning the absence of the temple in the new heavens and the new earth where the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb will be the temple of the new Jerusalem, Revelations 21, verse 22. The presence of God and of Christ shall so permeate the final city that no need shall exist for a temple building. And him saying this, God bringing this out, Habakkuk penning this in the visions right after he just talked about the, the dumb foolish idols that can't do anything shows that we have a living God that is sitting in his temple that is in control that will have his justice, that will have his way and will ultimately, like we said a few weeks ago, the entire earth will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of our king, our God. Entire earth. 
He says, look, this is what it means, that all the earth should hush before the Lord. This is the same command that appears in Zephaniah and Zechariah in context of expectant judgment. We also see silence before God in reverential awe. This is a moment where even Habakkuk himself is silenced before God. He comes before God with all these complaints and God answers him graciously and walks through these things. He said, this doesn't make sense and this doesn't make sense. And God engages in this conversation and it ends with Habakkuk being silent, reverentially in awe of God, bowing down before him. And, and the chapter three, guys, is just beautiful of what Habakkuk says about God and his posture with which he's been pushed into by the Lord through this process. Because we serve a God that is worth idolizing. We serve a God that's worth giving our entire heart to. He's, he's, he's worth us submitting every single aspect to him, even our hardships, because we know our hardships are to be endured as, as, as discipline, and even the, even the suffering, because we know that the suffering is producing something else. And so no matter your circumstances, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how hard it is, we come to a God that is a wrathful God, that is a feisty, fiery God, that is a jealous God, but is a gracious God and says, I love you. I'm in charge. I'm in control. I haven't left my throne. And don't worry, I, there will be a day where there won't even need to be a throne because my presence will be the throne and I will be with my people, my children, the ones who live by faith, the ones who in living by faith can persevere to the end, the ones that will, yes, at times endure hardship as discipline, but it's because I'm making you more like my son, Jesus Christ. This is what he says. And only when the problem of the wicked is resolved will the glory of the God fill the earth. Only when righteous judgment rewards the wicked according to their deserving, deservings will true knowledge of God's holiness shine forth in all its splendor. So now we end with this declaration. Guys, as the people of faith, as the children of faith, we, we see in ways, and maybe you've heard, you're like, man, I, I am idolizing things or I am, I am greedy in these things. Then, then, then praise God for him bringing that to your awareness. Don't sit in guilt or shame. Yeah, you can be upset with yourself. Like, how did I give myself to that? How did I let this thing become an idol? How did I, how did I do those things? But let it be cut off. Let God work in your heart and make you more like him. Let him show you what generosity says. Look, even, even the scriptures say that it is more blessed to give than to receive. We, we, we've got to see that that is what people command of us. See, in this text, in chapter two, you kind of see this overarching reminding you that God is a wrathful God and that the people of God will be disciplined and that's, those are kind of hard truths, but that we ultimately see the end goal is that the whole earth will be filled with his glory and the reality is the fact that God is in his throne no matter what we see or don't see, no matter what we expect or no matter what, how long it takes, God is in his throne, he's actively working. We don't have to doubt because he's a living God, he's breathing. No golden calf can breathe. He's breathing. He's a living God. He, in fact, the very breath that we have in our lungs comes from him. He woke you up this morning. He rose the sun this morning. He's alive. He's active. He's in his throne. So coming back to the cup. Look, wherever you are in this way, wherever you, you've, you've been through this process, if you looked at these woes and you realize like, wow, these are things that, that are due God's wrath. We, we talked about this a little bit last week where, where as a child of God, as someone that has, has given their life and faith, submission to, we've subjugated ourselves to Jesus Christ. We've given ourselves over to him and said, he is, he is supreme controller. He has my life. He is the Lord of my life. As someone that's done that, we now, when we grab the cup and when we drink, we don't drink the cup of wrath that Jesus took for us on the cross. We drink the cup of blessing. 
because every last one of my sins that I have done, that I am doing, and that I will do have been forgiven by him. And so we get to come as children, whether we're in experiencing discipline. And, and again, just I, I want to just remind us of this. Habakkuk complains to God. Habakkuk complains to God about his circumstances and, his, and the people of Judah and says, what are you doing? Why is there no justice going forward? Why are they worshiping all these idols? Like, what are you doing? And God comes and says, oh, don't worry. I'm raising up a people to crush them, to just really utterly, utterly just punish them and discipline them in this way. Habakkuk is a part of that people. Habakkuk, who was pleading for God to do the right thing, gets to experience the discipline of God because of the community of people making the poor choice. So don't just think that discipline's transactionary. Like, oh, okay, if I just stop idolizing, I won't be under discipline anymore. No, you might be under discipline because there needs to be discipline for all of Rev, or there needs to be discipline for all of the big C church, or just the discipline for your community, or discipline for your family. God will be preeminent in his discipline because he's about making us more like his son and bringing glory to himself. But even if you're experiencing discipline, we can be perplexed but not lost because we know that we have a God who has taken all of the wrath that God owed me and drank every last drop of it on the cross for me. This is what it means to follow God. As hard as discipline and wrath is in the resurrection, we won't have an accusation against him and he won't have an accusation against us because of what Jesus Christ has done. There is no wrath for the children of God. And why is that? Because like it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. This is what it is for us. This is what it means for us. Habakkuk began this dialogue with God in an effort to understand the mysterious ways of a holy God with sinful people. Now he stands in the presence of the Lord's holy temple, hushed in reverential awe. He may not have grasped fully the implications of the divine answer to his query, yet he stands assured of the abiding lordship of his God, of his justice in prosecuting all violators of his holy law, and of his infinite mercy in granting life to all who will trust in him and in the provisions he has promised for the sinners, as one scholar has said. So what does this mean for us? This means that if, if you are a child of God, we're going to take communion today. You're going to get to take communion. And so the, the band's going to come up, and we're going to get ready to, to sing in just a second here. They're going to take communion with us. But when we, we take pro communion, we, we proclaim that there is no other God we proclaim that Jesus is God, that Jesus is who he says he was, that he did what he did, and he did it for us. And we proclaim that his goodness is an, uh, in us, that he is our king. And so when we do this, we, we proclaim that we aren't the children under wrath anymore. We don't have to read this whole chapter two and recognize that the wrath of God is coming to us because that has been paid for, even when we accidentally or intentionally give ourselves to idolatry or greed. Even when we, act, when we step in those actions, we realize that and God in his grace shows us, hey, you've been greedy here and I need to cut this away. Even in that moment, we don't have to wallow with our head down going, oh great, the wrath of God is coming because the punishment has been paid to the last drop on the cross by Jesus Christ. And so when we, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we communicate that it is, it is a symbol of recognizing that we are in alignment with him, that he is our king, that we don't have to drink the cup of wrath that Jesus swept bloods in the, blood in the garden for to have to drink, thinking about. 
We don't have to take that cup because Jesus took it for us. He exchanged that cup for us as a cup of blessing like we see in the Lord's Supper. He says, I will drink the cup of wrath for your sins. You can drink my cup of blessing for my righteousness. And that's what we get to do in communion. And so when we, when we take communion, we proclaim this. And so in, in 1 Corinthians, it says it this way. Paul says, For I, uh, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. When he calls an audible of the cups, takes a cup and, and substitutes and goes, whoa, whoa, what are you doing here? This is the cup of your new blood, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until what? He comes again. So we're not just proclaiming what he's done. We're proclaiming that he's coming again and we cannot wait for that day when he comes and he finally does away with all the sin that is deserving of God's wrath and all we do is live in the blessing of his righteousness in the resurrection. He said, do this and remembrance me. Father, I hope it, I hope it sinks in that the simple act of taking communion is something that we can do because you already took the wrath. God, I hope it sinks in. I hope people don't take this flippantly. I hope people don't lose sight of the fact that the actions that we do that aren't a part of you are deserving of that cup of wrath, but because of Jesus Christ and his perfect substitute in our behalf, we have the cup of blessing. And Father, forgive us for the ways that we've made light of that cup. Forgive us for the ways that we've continued to engage in things that aren't of you. Forgive us for the ways that we've given to greed or, or idolatry. God, for those things, I pray you just rip them from us. And Lord, if that means that we must be a part of discipline because our community needs it, then God, we welcome it. Even if we didn't have a part in it because we recognize that you have saved us into community. And so God, wherever we need to purge sinfulness in our lives, whatever sin is, all of the sins that are leading to death, God, whatever it is, God, would we remember two things? One is that your blood has washed us clean, that I'm not identified by my worst act. I'm not identified by multiple acts. I'm identified as a child of God because of my submission to you as my Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you'd help us to remember another thing that as your children, as those that can drink the cup of blessing, you have given us your spirit and your truth and you have commanded of us to walk in those things. And so, Father, I pray, I pray that we would walk daily as we go. We'd wake up, we'd find ways to give all our gratitude to you. We'd find ways to, to run from anything that could potentially ever come in as an idol, God. And God, for those of us that are maybe just struggling right now with the idea of you being just, God, would we just recognize in the promise that Jesus says he will not drink of this cup again until we are in the feast with him. And God, we long for that day. But would we please, please help us remember that you are in your throne. Your hands aren't off the wheel. You aren't out of control. 
despite all the ugliness and the brokenness and the darkness that we see, your light is prevailing and will prevail. And every knee, whether they proclaim you or not, will bow to you as the rightful Lord and King. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the ability to take communion. And I look forward to being back together with people, God. I pray, um, I pray you be glorified in everything that we go through and everything that we say and everything that we do. And God, I pray that we proclaim the goodness of you, even in our suffering, even in our hardships, even in the discipline. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.